Okay, so uh, today we're going to finish Revelation 20. So um, if you've got a Bible, you can feel free to turn there. A device, you can uh, swipe to Revelation 20. Uh, and we've got some things that, I don't know, maybe this isn't what you expect on Thanksgiving weekend, right? We're going to talk about the final battle and hell and judgment. Uh, this maybe isn't what you expected to walk into today, but um, I will say, as I studied this this past week, I felt like it compelled a ton of thanks in my own heart as I was studying these things. And I think hell and judgment, I think they do actually lead us into hearts of thankfulness. And so that's my hope this morning as we study this. So let's read these verses that we're going to look at, and then I'll set the stage for what we're going to be doing this morning. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, He was thrown into the lake of fire. Let's pray. God, thank you for these verses. I pray that they would be instructive for us this morning. I pray that you could capture our attention in ways that we need to be captured. I pray that you would prick us, that you would encourage us, that you would would challenge us in these moments together. But at the end of all this, God, I pray that we would see Jesus for who he is and that our faith would be built in him. So would you do that in these moments together? In your name I pray. Amen. Okay, so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at some of the details surrounding the final battle of history, coming to the end of things here. We're going to talk about hell, and then we're going to talk about judgment as well. So we're going to begin with the end of the 1,000 years, which we talked about last week as being this non-literal, symbolic, spiritual description of the church age. So the time that we are in right now, the time between Jesus' death and his resurrection and his second coming, which is future. And at the end of this time, 
And when Jesus returns, there is going to be this final battle. Now, this isn't the first time that we've heard about this final battle. This is something that has come up repeatedly throughout the book of Revelation. And and so we shouldn't be surprised by it coming up here. We've already heard about this event in a number of ways. We talked about Armageddon. Armageddon was foretold earlier in Revelation, and this battle has been talked about and foreshadowed in numerous ways. We've talked about how Revelation is a cyclical book, okay? Not a chronological book, it's a cyclical book. So we're given these repeated visions throughout the book that are providing us as readers ongoing depictions of the same events or similar events that are happening throughout the history of the world, I want to give us one example from what we're reading today here in Revelation 20 to try and just paint a bit of a picture for us. So verse 11 said that the earth and the sky fled away. The earth and the sky fled away. This is maybe a bit of a tricky idea for us to conceive of here. So what's being described of here in this moment is the full scope of how everything in this world is turned upside down, okay? That when Jesus comes back, everything's going to be turned upside down, but but in this, everything is going to be made right as well. Now, in chapter 6, we read about the destruction that would result both at the end when Jesus comes to fight this final battle as well as the time leading up to the end, even the time that we're in right now. And so think of this phrase, the earth and the sky fled away. Back in Revelation 6.14, we also read there, the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. And so this is the same idea that's being communicated back in Revelation 6 as well as here in Revelation 20 as well. And so over and over we're getting these pictures that are revealing Jesus, his coming, his rule, what he's doing, what he will do in the future as well. So we've been prepped throughout this book that what's going to come at the end, where we're at in Revelation 20, is going to include catastrophe. There's going to be this climactic battle that is going to end all things. Now in this battle, we read about Satan being released from his imprisonment. That was a result of Jesus' death on the cross. We talked a number of weeks ago that on the cross, as Jesus died, he was throwing down Satan. Okay, so Satan is imprisoned in the sense that his capacity to accuse us, to deceive us, has been exposed. And we now have been provided everything that we need to say no to sin. Okay, sin has no power over us other than that which we give it. Okay, we've been provided everything we need to turn away from sin, to turn towards Jesus through the power of the gospel. Now, the activity of Satan, sin, fear, sickness, I think we would all say is still pervasive in this world. We simply have something that we can trust in to provide us hope, to provide us freedom, to provide us joy in the midst of all the brokenness of this world and know 
that at the end of it, when Jesus returns, he will conquer all of it. He will take all that is wrong and he will make it right. He will take all that is broken, he will put it back together in the way that he intended or he created it at the beginning. Okay, so Satan is released here in Revelation 20, and he's depicted as gathering his army in preparation for this final battle. And the army is described as Gog and Magog. Now, to our modern ears, this might sound really weird, right? Like, what is Gog? What is Magog? Someone who spent some time in the Bible, specifically in the Old Testament, might understand the the significance of of this. If you want to go read it at another time, you can go to Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. So this is where this is recorded. So Gog is the king of Magog. Okay? So at this in Ezekiel 38 and 39, God is taking this people, using this people of Magog to accomplish his purposes. So this enemy of God, Magog, at a time when they feel like they were about to destroy God's people, things were turned upside down, and they were ultimately destroyed. So this people and all of the surrounding nations that had joined them to battle against God were defeated and then were feasted upon by birds at their destruction. This is basically exactly what we read in Revelation 19, where there was this supper of God, where the enemies of God are destroyed and birds come and feast upon them. So again, this cyclical nature of the Bible. Now, in Revelation 20, there's this large army. It says that they're numbering like the sand of the sea. Okay, so there's this picture here that we really need to see. When it says, like the sand of the sea, what we're intended to hear is many. An overwhelming number. Too many to count. So many that if we were to come up against it, we would be clearly, definitively defeated. That's how many there is. Okay, so the picture then for us that's being drawn as we read this is God had to save. His people couldn't just take up arms and defeat this enemy. There was way too many of them. Only God could do this. His people, God's people were surrounded. It seemed dire. But God intervenes. It says here that fire came down from heaven. So, The picture being drawn here then for us is that salvation is clearly an act of God. It's coming down from heaven for his people. And so this is explicitly a salvation that has to come from God. God's people are there, surrounded. Salvation comes down from heaven. And this is the most important picture we should see here. This is the revelation of Jesus that is vital for us. Jesus saves us. 
He alone saves us. So nothing that we're going to do, the fact that we're here this morning, we're checking the box of going to church, that's not going to save us. Getting up, reading our Bibles every single day, that's not going to save us. The Bible is telling us over and over the only way that we're saved is by trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone. And here at the end of Revelation, this is the picture again that's being given to us. Salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Okay, one last detail that I want to highlight here as it pertains to God's salvation. There's a number of references in these verses that emphasize a correlation to God saving Israel out of Egypt. So this is the story that we know as the Exodus. So back in the second book of the Bible, what we find there is God's people enslaved. They cry out to God because they can't save themselves. God hears their cries. He comes to them. He rescues them and he saves them. So pictured here in Revelation 20 are God's people who are encamped. Okay, and this idea of encampment is something that is a bit pervasive throughout the Old Testament. Now, if we were to read this literally, what we would do with this idea is we would think, okay, at this final battle, there's going to be this group of Christians that are going to gather together. So now we've got to figure out that place, right? Probably the Middle East. Okay, we've got to find that place, we've got to get there, and we've got to ready ourselves for that battle. And, and this is where some of the literal reading of Revelation just gets really tricky. That's not what's being communicated here for us. Okay, so, but there is this picture of this encampment, right? And God's people then are being surrounded by their enemies. And this was a constant Old Testament image as Israel was constantly on the move. Israel was exiled from the land that God promised to give to them. He led them into that land. They sinned, then they were exiled. They were driven out of that land because of their sin. Also then, as we move into the New Testament, God's people are described as aliens in this world, as strangers in this world, as sojourners in this world, like people who are going camping, right? Like, so it's the same idea that's being depicted here. Secondly, then, the incorporation of fire coming down from heaven is reminiscent of the fire that guided Israel as they were escaping their Egyptian captors. So what happened then, God rescued his people out of Egypt, fled at night, and the way that they were able to see be led out of Egypt is God gave these pillars of fire. And that allowed them to be able to see where they were going and allowed them to escape their captors. So the salvation stories that were foretold earlier in the Bible were not just coincidental. They were foreshadowing a greater salvation, an ultimate salvation that we're reading about here in Revelation 20. So So part of what I want you to see is the cyclical, repetitive nature of the Bible. The salvation story told back in Exodus is now being fulfilled ultimately here in Revelation 20. And we see some symbols that are being utilized in similar ways. Okay, so final battle. Jesus is coming and he is going to win uh, this battle decisively. 
All right, now let's move into verse 10 and a discussion of hell. Okay, so let me read this verse. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So there's been this tendency throughout history, but, but maybe even more so in our modern times, to downplay the reality of hell. I'm going to touch on that in a bit, but first let's just observe a little bit about what the Bible says about hell. So I want to read this verse from Matthew 25, 41. It says there, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So I want to make just a few observations here, just about this one verse, what we can learn about hell in a general sense. So first of all, it's a cursed place, okay? God created it uh, as a cursed place, but he's also sending cursed people to this place as well. So, so very clearly, you don't want to be there, okay? Because it's a cursed place, no one should want to be there. We also read here the phrase, depart from me. And so this is communicating the idea that hell is a place that involves separation from God. And and this is a distinct aspect of hell, and one I think that is probably overlooked by many people. So often, people maybe through their upbringing or whatever think of hell primarily as fire and brimstone. And, And that's not necessarily wrong, but I think this idea of separation from God is something that just gets overlooked. The greatest... Uh, error, the, the greatest tragedy of hell is that God's not there. It possesses also an eternal fire. So in verse, uh, or Matthew 25, 41 here, it's talking about an eternal fire. And so we've got to engage with the fact that it has eternal qualities to it, that, that it doesn't end. Okay? It also says this is a place prepared for the devil and his angels. So this, this is important, because I think what many people think is that hell is kind of the home, the abode of Satan, and, and that's what it was for. But it was a place of torment that was created for the enemies of God, for those who had rebelled against God. So that's why God created this, was because Satan and his angels had rebelled against God. Now all of these Aspects are supported in other parts of the Bible, but I just felt like this is one verse that really helped to allow us to see a number of different aspects of hell. Let me speak to a couple of other verses here. Second Peter 2.4 speaks about gloomy darkness in reference to hell. So whether this be true physically, emotionally, spiritually, or any other capacity, it's likely true of all the aspects Hell is a reality that is void of light. And and what we know symbolically through the Bible is that light conveys hope. Light conveys freedom. Light conveys Jesus. Jesus is the light of the world. So this is a place that's void of hope. It's void of goodness. And ultimately, it's void of God. 
And this idea that it's void of God is maybe seen most clearly in Mark 15.34. So this gives us a really vivid picture of a hellish reality as we find Jesus at the moment that he has taken sin upon himself. He has become sin, and because he's become sin, he's, he's experiencing the wrath of God. He cries out in anguish to his father. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So in that moment, Jesus who's part of the triune God. So he is knit together with his Father in a way that's beyond our comprehension. But in that moment, he feels the separation. He is forsaken from his Father. So he cries out in anguish concerning that felt separation from God. So there are these realities that are described in the Bible, and we really want to let what the Bible says, shape what we think about hell. But at the same time, we must also understand that the Bible is full of symbols. And symbols never fully capture the ultimate reality being described. It's doing its best. It's it's giving us a picture, but it's not fully describing what's actually going on there. So when when Jesus talked about hell in the first century, what's recorded in the Gospels, he very likely was looking at or referencing a garbage dump. Okay? That garbage dump can give us pictures and ideas about what hell is, but it's not fully and finally going to resolve, give us that complete picture of what hell ultimately is. C.S. Lewis, well-known theologian, he talked about hell in terms of self-absorption, that hell being like this place where we're stuck with ourselves and the misery that's attached when we can't get away from ourselves. There's no one else that, can, that, that we can bounce the idea off of, that we can be in community with, and just the utter misery of self-absorption. All of these descriptions can be helpful and are true but none of them likely fully captures the horror of what hell really is. So so whatever we think of hell, it's probably infinitely worse than whatever our ideas of hell are. But this is what we do. When something is horrific, terrible, we tend to try and ignore it, right? We put it behind the closet door. And so we hide from things, we avoid things that are displeasing to us. And I think hell is one of those things that we tend, whether you grew up in the church, you're newer to the church, we tend to just kind of put that on the back burner and say, I'll think about that at another time. We tend not to think about hard things. Some have sought to make the Bible say something other than what it seemingly says. So I want to talk for a moment here about a view of hell that has become a bit more pervasive in the last number of decades. And so this is a view of hell known as annihilationism. Okay, so annihilationism is essentially means that the wicked will at some point cease to exist or that they will at some point be 
destroyed. So this has become more mainstream uh, for a number of reasons. I want to talk about some of those reasons here over the next few minutes. So one of the most pervasive, persuasive reasons flows from the emphasis within our culture to focus on our feelings. Hell does not create good feelings. And so we oftentimes will try and find ways to explain it away. And one of the ways that we will do this is we'll talk about how hell is inconsistent with the love of God we see elsewhere. That a loving God could not envision hell. That, that this just seems like two separate, distinct people. Okay, so if, if you were to read through the Bible, you would find that God's justice and God's wrath is not hidden in the Bible. It, it's talked about regularly. So, so it's very clearly there. You have to do a ton of theological gymnastics to try and avoid it. Avoid it. So, so God's wrath and his justice are common throughout the Bible. Now, as we consider hell and how it's presented in the Bible, I think that it actually amplifies God's love by the fact that Jesus took on our sin and that he felt the full fury of God's wrath. What it's doing as we look at Jesus on the cross is it is demonstrating the vast expanse of God's love for us. What else would drive God to go there for us? There's no other reasonable explanation other than love. And this is what the book of Ephesians talks about as it refers to that the immense height and width and depth and length of God's love. God's love is so vast, we can't measure it. We can't comprehend it. It's like us diving into the ocean, and we will never swim to the bottom of God's love. We will never swim to the other side of God's love. That's how vast and massive His love is for us. And so then, the bigger hell is, the worse hell is, only increases the splendor of Jesus' love for us. So the more that we are forgiven, the more we will forgive others. The more we have been loved, the more we will love others. This is what Luke 7.47 says, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. If our sin is small and we don't need much forgiveness, it will create small love for others and small love for God. So the horror of hell is intended to display the immensity of God's love. Another reason why hell is frowned upon by some is an argument that it is unjust of God to punish someone with an eternal hell for their minor sins. So simply put, there's a disproportion between the sins committed and the corresponding punishment. Now, a problem with this is that it assumes we know the extent as to how bad our sin is. 
And no one does. None of us understands how wicked and how evil our hearts are, how grave our sin is. And this is the whole premise of Satan's agenda. He wants to deceive us. He wants us to think that we see completely when we see in part. This is what he does over and over. He deceives us. The Bible is clear that we don't know when we are being deceived. We don't know always when, usually ever, when we are being deceived. To make this step, to think that we know the full extent of our sin and we know the punishment that should be made out for our sin is to make a step of unwise boldness. So Tim Keller has a helpful quote. He says, Before we dismiss hell or the idea of conscious eternal torment, we have to realize we are saying to Jesus, the preeminent teacher of love and grace in history, I am less barbaric than you, Jesus. I am more compassionate and wiser than you. I, I think if someone would ask us straight up, are you more compassionate than God? I think most of us, if not all of us, would say no. Clearly, I'm not. But when we go to this idea that's being described in annihilationism, that this is essentially what we are saying. The horror of hell shouldn't compel us to call the justice of God into question, but to be confronted with the horror of our own sin. To see how evil and bad our own sin is. Tim Keller says elsewhere, I believe one of the reasons the Bible tells us about hell is so it can act like smelling salts about the true danger and seriousness of even minor sins. There's, to be clear, there's no one who walks on this earth who is guilty of only committing minor sins. But we, we need to be confronted because I think a lot of times we do think our sins are just of the minor variety. Because we get into this comparison game, right? We, we look at the murderer and we say, well, I've never murdered someone. But then if we know our Bible, we know we've got to go to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount when, when he talked about if you're angry, if you have hatred towards another, your sin is the same as the person actually killing someone as well. And so there, there are no minor sins. Even though we want to create those categories in our own minds to make ourselves feel better about ourselves, there are no minor sins. So hell is kind of this smelling salts to shake us, to awaken us to this reality. Our sin, my sin is grave. It's horrific, as is all of ours. There's a man in the Old Testament named Job. And Job um, was allowed to be, um, Satan had access to Job. And he caused great suffering in Job's life. And so Job came to God and he questioned God. Like, what, what is all of this? And, 
And so he came hard after God, asking his questions, wondering why he is suffering to the degree that he is actually suffering what many of us might say is actually hell on earth, the, the extent of Job's suffering. And, and this is how God responded to Job's challenges. He says, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And, and so what happens, this is Job 38. The next number of chapters are God just coming hard at Job, saying, where were you? Who are you? And in all of this, he's helping Job understand. You think you have this massive understanding, and and you've got a grain of sand of understanding. There is so much more going on than you realize, Job. And it essentially... Where, where we find Job is he curls up in the fetal position uh, in the corner, and, and he's like, I am a wicked man, a man of unclean lips. Romans eleven thirty three to 36, I think, sums this up really well, who God is and, and his, his perspective in all this. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, And how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. It's imperative that we let the Bible shape our understanding of who God is and to shape our understanding of hell. There is so much more we could delve into. And, and please don't think that I'm trying to be exhaustive in what I'm talking about with hell here this morning. We could spend weeks on this. Um, just a couple of other brief thoughts on the idea of hell here. In the Bible... <clears throat> When sin is atoned for, there's no more wrath. So sin is atoned for, and then someone, something is deemed clean, sinless, righteous. So if someone is annihilated, it would suggest that the person's sin is atoned for, that they have been cleansed. So the question then becomes, if someone's sin is atoned for, shouldn't they then go to heaven instead of going to whatever, the netherworld, or just being destroyed, to to turning into nothing, to not cease to exist? Related to this then as well, annihilation leads to a form of rest. To cease to exist is a form of rest. One of the ideas connected to hell is there is no rest. We read about this earlier in Revelation 14, verse 11. It says, The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. So, so this is a, an idea. It's not communicated just here, but the idea of hell is that there is no rest. Yet, to cease to exist, to be 
destroyed is to communicate this idea that there is a form of rest. There is an escape from an eternal hell. So hell is inescapable. It is horrific. It lasts forever and ever. And if, we, if we've got a correct picture of hell, the picture that the Bible presents, I think it's nauseating. I think it's sickening. I think it's something that causes us to run after our neighbors, um, those that we love, our coworkers, because we don't want that for them. So this is the backdrop, and, and with this as the backdrop, then we should then see Jesus' sacrifice on the cross as true love. For Jesus to save us from hell, to save us from what we've just talked about, he must love us. He didn't have to go to the cross unless he wanted to save us. Moreover, for Jesus to experience, not just to save us from hell, save us as sinners from hell, but for him to experience literal hell. That's what he experienced on the cross. God's wrath being poured out on him. And who is he doing it for? The people who did all the great things, followed all the religious rules, were so impressive? No, that's not us. We're the ones who rebelled against God. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. This is love. Nothing but love. And so hell is intended to give us a picture of God's great love. There is nothing else like it. Okay, last section then here, judgment. Here we are reminded of the good news of Jesus. Yes, talking about judgment reminds us of the good news of Jesus. Verse 12 says, it tells us that books were opened. Okay, now we might wonder what is in those books. These books are filled with what people had done throughout their lives. These books are filled with the works that people had committed throughout their existence here on earth. So people are going to be judged by their works. This is a terrifying thought, right? If we're honest with ourselves, and I know, you know, Sunday morning church, that's not the place we always want to be honest, right? But if we're honest with ourselves, this is a terrifying thought. We might be hard workers. We might be high achievers. We might be successful, but every single one of us has skeletons in our closet. We have things that we think about, and we, we think, I don't want people to know this about me. Things that we feel shame. Areas of our hearts where we've not truly experienced the freedom of the gospel. None of us wants to be judged by our works. There's so much sin and shame found there. If someone's name is not found in the book of life, it says that they are thrown in the lake of fire. But the great news here is there's another book. The book of life. And verse 12 gives us this compelling picture. What's contained in this book isn't what someone has done. What's contained in this book is just names. 
just names. It's not a book of deeds. Names, not works. This emphasizes the fact that we are not saved by our works. That's not what's written in the book of life. All that is recorded is a name. This is so good. We're not going to be judged on our works. We're going to be judged on Jesus' work for us. So how does our name get in the book of life? Through belief in Jesus. So when we're confronted with hell, we'll either turn to ourselves, we'll try to work it out, we'll try and improve ourselves, or we'll turn to Jesus, the one who can save us. We'll hope in him. So the call then for us, the one point of gospel application I have for us this morning is a call to belief in Jesus. The grace and love that's only found in him. His love is lavish. His goodness is unthinkable. His grace is truly amazing. So may the doctrine of hell display the greatness of Jesus to us and draw us into a life of hope and joy. Hell is terrifying. It is terrifying for sure, but we don't need to live in fear. We can see the horrors, but Jesus intends for us to see the greatness of his love overcoming the horror of hell. This is what the end of Revelation is communicating to us. Hell is horrific. Jesus is greater. He will conquer. That's the hope for those who trust in him. So let hell be the smelling salt that startles us to see how disgusting our, our sin is and then compels us to turn away from sin, away from Satan, away from hell, and turn towards Jesus and know the joy, the life, the hope, the freedom that's found only in him.